Hi, everybody. Welcome to a presentation by Lauren Beckers at the WordFest, also first time here. Uh, Lauren is a storyteller par excellence, and I can absolutely assure you I saw this presentation in a previous form. It is riveting. If you ever wondered what goes into the making of fiction, what inspires a writer, what she sees, what she hears, what she makes notes of, this is about that. Uh, Lauren is leaving tomorrow for Italy for a residency of five weeks to go and write, leaving a little daughter behind, but that's what it takes to be a good writer. Um, she signed a lucrative contract in America for Shining Girls. It was a three-book contract. Shining Girls is out. Broken Monsters is out. It's outside. Shining, Shining Girls caused a furore internationally with reviews streaming in. So these books are on sale outside. Um, please go and have a look when the presentation is finished. But we're very, very excited to have Lauren here, and I welcome her over to her. And it's, this is multimedia, so put your glasses on and switch off your cell phones. <laughs> Anyone whose cell phone rings, I'm going to finish the, that conversation for you. You're going to hand it forward. Um, hi, thanks for having me. Um, I really love this quote by a poet called Muriel Rayquaza. The universe is made of stories, not atoms. And that's always been kind of my experience of the world. Um, I also really love this image, and I'll come back to this in a little bit. About, um, And I feel like we can all be more disco balls in the world, but I will talk about that in a minute. Just keep this in your mind. So I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old, and I found out that you get paid to make up stories, that that was a real job that people had. And I was like, yes, sign me up, I am so in. And I thought that writing, you know, like when I was five or 15, I, I sat and I imagined what that would be like. And it would be like, you know, just sitting there at my desk and letting the stories flow through me and it was going to be easy and amazing and like I didn't factor in like actually how lonely and how hard writing is. Um, I think someone compared writing a novel once to chaining yourself to a wheel and going round and round and round and round until you actually get the thing finished. I have a daughter. Uh, she is eight years old now. This is a picture of me with her, it's my favorite picture of us. Uh, she's seven years old there. So a little bit older than me when I came up with my ridiculous dream. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to do with her is story time. And it doesn't matter how late we get home, if we've been out doing something or we've gone to see a movie or, you know, whatever it is. We get home and I'm like, listen, I'm sorry, like it's late, you can't watch TV, straight to bed, no messing around. You know, we can't play, we can't wrestle, just bedtime. And she's like, but what about stories? I'm like, well, of course we're going to have stories. God, you know, it's basically sacrilegious. Stories is the most important thing in our household. Um, and this is me reading a Wonder Woman comic that I wrote, uh, which is specifically for kids. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a bit. Um, can we keep the house lights up a little bit so I can see my audience? Okay. So, yeah. So, um, my daughter, for the first time, understood what I did when I wrote this Wonder Woman comic because... A lot of the time I have to travel, and I have to travel on book tour, and it sounds like a dream life, and it is a dream life, but it's also very lonely. You're on the road for three weeks. In 2013, when The Shining Girls came out, I did 33 cities in nine different countries. I was away for three months out of the year, 
And with a little girl, it was really hard. And it's glamorous and it's amazing and everybody loves you. But at the end of the day, these wonderful people you meet, they're not actually your friends. They're lovely. And it's been wonderful to like share an hour or two with them. But you go back to your beautiful, empty hotel room and you're by yourself and you're in a different time zone and the, you know, Skype, Skype and the hotel Wi-Fi isn't even working. So you just, it's very isolating. And my daughter struggles to understand. She's like, but why do you have to go away? You know, why do you have to travel for like three weeks? Why can't you have a normal job like normal people? And, I'm like, and, then, and then she said, she was like, oh yeah, because then you wouldn't get to write Wonder Woman comics. And I was like, yeah, see, see, see? So yeah, um, so it only took me, so I dreamed of being a writer when I was five. It only took me 25 years to get to the point where I actually could do that for a living. So these are some of my books. This doesn't include my latest short story collection, Slipping. Um, and I've been very successful. I've been very lucky. These are some of the translations of Zoo City, for example. Um, I think this is pretty much all of them. What I particularly love is this one featuring a white girl on the cover. And it's definitely not a white girl in the book, and I don't know how the Russians managed to like, figure that out, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, these are some of the issues, uh, different editions of The Shining Girls. Occasionally, I'll just get books in the mail, and I'm like, what language is this even? And it's really amazing. If you are going to write, please hang on to your world rights, because every single one of those covers is free money. <laughs> and it might be $200, or it might be $5,000, but it's, it's free, and that's really important. So get a great agent who appreciates that. Um, the Shining Girls is also being adapted by Leonardo DiCaprio's company. Um, Appian Way and MRC. And uh, we were in talks with Danny Boyle, who actually wrote an amazing script, but he's no longer attached. He's moved on to other things, and now they're talking to some other really amazing directors. Leo was in Cape Town about two years ago, and I got to hang out with him on his yacht. Um, here's a picture of us together. <laughs> I have met Leo, but I do get a Christmas card from him every year. Um, and yeah, so the thing about movie deals, they're very exciting and it's great to talk about. And again, it's free money. Um, but it also takes between four and ten years for a movie to happen. And most books that get optioned to be movies never happen at all. Um, I know we see a lot of books like Girl on a Train or Gone Girl like rush to market very fast. But that's because they're like just massive international successes. And I'm a 100,000 copy bestseller in the UK, but I'm not like five million. So it's not going to happen straight away. So hopefully I'll get to hang out on Leo's yacht with him soon. Um, a little bit of my background. I worked in kids' animation for a long time. Uh, these are some of the shows that I worked on. Urbo, The Adventures of Pax Africa, which I believe is still in rerun on SABC3. Um, and I worked with two other amazing South African writers, Sarah Lotz and Sam Wilson. Um, they were part of my writing team. Mook, uh, which was a French show. Flory's Dragons, a Disney UK show. And I worked on the News. My daughter recently said to me, she decided that she wants to write a book. And she said to me, and we're supposed to be writing it together. And she said to me, she was like, Mama, you know, maybe, maybe J.K. Rowling should write it. And I'm like, oh, God, wow, that's cold, that's brutal. And she's like, oh, come on, Mama, you write horror. And I'm like, I don't write horror, I wrote all of these, come on. And she's like, okay, okay, why don't you write it and J.K. Rowling can just put her name on it. So if you need me, I'll be in the corner being J.K. Rowling's ghostwriter. Um, I also directed a documentary, Glitter Boys and Ganglands. There is an illegal version of this up on YouTube where you can watch the entire thing. 
Um, if you do that, please use um, uh, the uh, surfing mode where you don't get the ads. Like, use an ad blocker because the guys who have pirated my movie should not be getting ad revenue. But please do go watch it. Um, and that was really fun. It was amazing to like interview these different contestants in Muskegon, Western Cape, and to hear their stories. And I've always been inspired by real people. And a lot of my influence comes from. Well, I also write comics. Um, getting to the journalism, these are some of the comics that I've written. Survivors Club is out now. It's a what if the '80s horror movies were real, and where are those kids today? This is a comic called Birdie about a little Strandlooper witch in a future Cape Town who gets messages from the dead from the seagulls. And this is the Wonder Woman comic I wrote, which is the one thing my daughter appreciates. But before I got into any of this, I was a journalist for a very long time, and journalism is a backstage pass to the world. And what was so amazing to me, being a journalist, was like understanding that people, other people, see the world differently to me, um, the way they, they express themselves, for example. Um, this is Judge Unity Dow, who was one of Botswana's first female high court judges. And staying in her house with her for a weekend and seeing the kind of stuff that she dealt with and the, the crazy stories which came out of her own life was so inspiring, such amazing research. And my five-year-old self who dreamed about just making stuff up, that kid was wrong. Because the real stories come from, from research and from real experience. And of course, you, you bring in like the fiction and the made-up stuff as well. But I really, for me, it's really important to have that kind of grounding in reality. And I've been so inspired by the kinds of people I've met in my journalism and in my research. Um, this is Zanelisa uh, from Pika, which is the Peninsula Anti-Crime Association, um, which is basically a vigilante group in Kailicha. Um, they describe themselves as lions amongst the sheep because they're all ex-APLA and ex-MK. And post-apartheid, they couldn't get a job with the police service because the police require a matric. Um, and now they protect the community by charging the community a small fee to sort out your stolen TV or, you know, whatever it is. Just taxi money, really. Um, I got into trouble with my translator um, in this interview because he said I had to soften all of your questions. Like, it was, yeah, you went way too hardcore. Um... I've hung out with homeless sex workers, electricity cable thieves. Um, as we were walking through the community, with I was with uh, photographer Mark Scholl, and the whole community was like following us, and they were going, "Isn't Yorker? Isn't Yorker?" Which means snake, snake. Um, and the guys were like, "No, no, it doesn't mean we're electricity thieves. We're just, you know, like we're just talking about it. Like if we were electricity cable thieves, this is what we would do." And they're saying, "Isn't Yorker?" Because the electricity can bite you like a snake. That's the reason. I was like, uh-huh. Hang out with great white sharks um, and learn to make South African delicacies like smileys. Um, but I think what inspires a lot of my work is another South African delicacy, which is the Cook Sister, which is, let's face it, an American donut with an interesting twist. Um, so that's why I like to do in my work is kind of twist reality a little bit and take the things that you know and that are very familiar and kind of spin them around. Beautiful quote by P.J. O'Rourke, as some things are too strange for fiction, others are too true for journalism. I feel like Donald Trump is living this reality so hard right now. It's like, dude, please, like, fiction, dystopian fiction cannot keep up with this. Just stop. Um, so, yeah, so what I try to do in my work is I look at what's happening, and I like to push it further. 
Moxieland was my first novel. It took me four years to write. I did it as part of my MA in creative writing at UCT. And um, it took me four years to finish, which is the longest I've ever taken on a book, uh, until UCT said, look, if you don't finish this year, we love your money. It's great. We really appreciate it. But if you don't finish this year, you're embarrassing and we're going to kick you out of the program. And I was like, oh, okay. And I finished it in three months. No problem. So... Having been a journalist, a meaningful deadline is really, really important. Um, Moxland looked at cell phones and how addicted we are to them. Um, the book came out in 2008, but I wrote it kind of between 2004 and 2008. Um, I was interested in virtual worlds, like Second Life. Um, I was interested in the police state. Uh, and I came up with some crazy stuff in the book, like in the book there are police dogs who are triggered, they're kind of bionic police dogs and they're triggered by chemical signals. And we created a fake flyer which we gave out at the launch. And you know what, reality has proved much, much weirder. Um, this is Big Dog, which is part of DARPA. Um, this is a real robot that can run faster than humans and it can track you down and hunt you down right now. I did not predict killer robots in the skies, drones, I did not predict Twitter. Um, the world moves so fast and it's so strange and the future we're living in right now is weirder than anything I could have imagined 10 years ago. Uh, another thing which came true, which was very disturbing, um, in Moxieland, this is a slight spoiler, there's a scene in the book where there are a bunch of activists at a protest and they all receive a message on their cell phone saying your number has been registered at an illegal gathering. Um, Please disperse. The police have your details. And this is a real message from... What's the date on this? This was when the attacks in the Ukraine, or the, the protests in the Ukraine, and the message read, Dear subscriber, you are registered as a participant in a mass disturbance. And I based that in Moxieland on the bread riots that were happening in Mozambique at the time, where the Mozambican government appealed to MTN or Celsi or whoever it was, and ask them to shut down the cell phone networks. And communication is so vital to who we are in the world now. You know, the, the UN has declared internet access a basic human right, and it is because it is so central to who we are and how we live our lives, and how we communicate and how we organize, and, and, and to freedom. So it was quite scary to see that play out in the real world. Um, another thing I like to do is I like to challenge my own preconceptions. So I went to Haiti two years ago for a book project. Um, this isn't coming up in my new book, but it'll come, be coming up soon. Um, and it was one of the weirdest places I've ever been. Uh, it's basically like Kailicha on top of Constantia. Um, you know, the discrepancy between rich and poor is even worse than in South Africa. And, you know, it was, it was, it was very interesting and very strange, and I hung out with some artists. The first thing I did was go to the Haitian Country Club, the Port-au-Prince Country Club, and I crashed the U.S. ambassador's party because I'm cheeky. Um, and then I decided that I hadn't wanted to include voodoo because I'm like, oh, God, voodoo is so over-sensationalized. Like, I'm not going near it. That's not what I'm interested in Haiti. But the more time I spent there, the more I realized that it's an essential part of people's lives. The same way Sangomas and traditional healers in South Africa are so central to so many people's lives in South Africa. So I said to the guy at the hotel I was staying at, um, it was a Hotel Olofsson, which is um, it's mentioned in Graham Greene's novel about Haiti, and it's also the place where the first HIV test in the world was done, 
where the head chef and one of and the bartender both tested positive and were instantly fired because no one knew what AIDS and HIV was back then. So it's already a place that's rich, rich in stories. So I went to the owner of the hotel, Richard, who was previously involved in the government, and his mom was a famous raga singer, which is the voodoo roots rock um, kind of combination of music. And I said, Richard, look, I, I really actually want to do voodoo properly. Can you refer me to like a hongan or a mambo, which is a priest or a priestess, who can really kind of give me the full details and information and, and it won't be sensationalized. I, I need to know how it actually fits into people's lives. And he was like, yeah, 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 my bass player is a hongan. So I was like, cool. So I went on a motor taxi, a little motorbike taxi, like diving through the streets of Port-au-Prince. I'm amazed that I did not die. It was very scary. Um, and we went to go visit this hongan and kind of this... His house, uh, we went through kind of a, a rickety alley to get to his house, and it was kind of a three-story townhouse with, like, white tiles. But we get through the alley, and there's just a basement, and it's earth. And this is clearly where they do the rituals. There's, like, a dirt floor. There's a pillar with kind of things hanging off it. There's a little consul consultation room off to the side. And standing there in the room is this young woman, maybe 20, 22, and she's drawing weird symbols on the blackboard and chalk. And the young man standing watching her evaluating and I'm like this is amazing um so I speak to the hungan and he we do an, like an hour an hour-long interview and afterwards I say look could I pay for a consultation and he was like you know I don't normally do it for blonde which is white people he's like because you're from Africa I will so we go downstairs he puts on his robes um we go into his little ceremonial room and there's the weirdest stuff in there um this is the verve, which are symbols that you draw to summon particular lower. Um, this is the mirror of the universe, which reflects everything. Um, bells and nails, a bottle of rum. You pour out a little bit of rum for the spirits before they, uh, when you're summoning them. And also weird stuff like Ariel Little Mermaid. And these are all symbols which represent particular lower. But very, very weird and amazing. Um, this is the alley we walked in to get to the basement. And he gives me the most amazing reading I've ever had. It was fantastic. But of course, he's also had an hour to cold read me before I got there. And it was interesting because he was, he was saying, he was like, yeah, you know, you're going to be a famous writer, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, because, you know, you, you, we, we just spent an hour together and you're telling me what I want to hear. And he's like, and your spirituality. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm quite cynical. I'm like, mm-hmm, tell me about my spirituality. And he says, your spirituality is your understanding of people and your connection to people. I'm like, oh my God, that is my spirituality. <laughs> so it was really cool. So we're leaving and like, I give him a big hug as we're going out and like, we're walking back to the car and he's like, you must come back and train with me. You would make a good mambo. It's in you. I'm like, of course it is. Obviously I'm totally magic. Um, and we're walking back to the car and I'm like, you know, what was, I know you teach voodoo here as well. He's like, yes, yes, you must come back and study with me. And I was like, is that what that young woman was drawing, those weird symbols that she was drawing on the board? Was that voodoo? And he's like, what? No, it was physics. She was doing her homework. <laughs> and that was the perfect summary of Haiti for me. And like these, these expectations that we have and what I love about adventuring and like going to places is like having my preconceptions challenged um, and kind of thrown off by the wayside. I like to try and find a new perspective on things. So I was asked to write a Wonder Woman comic. Um, the editor, it was just an eight-pager, it's not a big thing. And the editor said to me, she was like, I want a South African Wonder Woman. And I was like, ooh, it's great. I'm like, Wonder Woman in South Africa, so white savior, 
comes to South Africa to solve corrective rape. I'm like, I, and I, I feel really uncomfortable with this. And then I thought about how to do it. And I was like, you know, my kid didn't understand any of my work. So I was like, well, why don't I do a kid-friendly story? So it's a classic Wonder Woman story. Um, this is some of, some of it. Um, it's a Wonder Woman surfing on the wing of her invisible jet. And she's flying to an island in Mozambique, which is volcanic, which is completely made up. And she's going to fight her arch nemesis, the cheetah. And the cheetah has turned Superman into Super Pig. I'm skipping ahead a bit. And Batman has been turned to stone. But Wonder Woman totally saves the day. And then suddenly the cheetah reappears on top of a giant cat. And then suddenly this giant hand reaches in and snatches her out of frame. And what's actually happening is that this whole adventure is playing out in the mind of a little girl, Zozo, in Soweto. And she has been imagining this whole adventure. You can see, like, Super Pig. It's kind of the piggy bank with the Superman symbol. Um, and her sister's really peeved because she has drawn on her dolls. And ultimately what happens is Zozo... I'm not going to ruin the whole thing. You can go and buy it. Um, Zozo superheroes up herself. And she, you know, sticks the stars on her butt, zips up. You know, this is the classic superhero scene of, like, the, you know, sitting up... And she becomes her own Wonder Woman. And it's about the power of the imagination and storytelling and the inner hero. And she's got her own invisible jet, which helps save the day. I also like to do... what Another thing I like to do is take what you know about something and just twist it a little bit. So I was asked to write a Rapunzel comic for the Fables universe. Um, this is the cover. It's very porno. It's not my fault. Um, although there is quite a lot of sex. I just read it to my daughter and I was like... Oh! God, there's so much swearing and sex. And like, I'm like, oh, okay. This is not a kid-friendly comic. Do not buy it for your kids. So I took the classic one, uh, um, Rapunzel story, which is Rapunzel gets pregnant by the prince, flees from the tower, uh, long hair, you know the, the deal. And I was like, you know what? So Rapunzel's all about the hair. I'm like, the other thing which is all about the hair is Japanese horror. And I'm like, this is not a coincidence. So there's the, the amazing film, The Ring, or Ringu, um, and it's about a haunted well. And um, there's an amazing Japanese legend, which dates back to the 17th century about this, um, called Okiku and the um, Twelve Plates. And I built that into my research, and I made Rapunzel, the girl from The Ring, with haunted hairballs, because she's been stuck down there, and she's been eating her hair, which is actually called, the medical term is uh, Rapunzel syndrome. And now she's emerged to get her revenge with the haunted hairballs. Obviously. Yeah. Um, research is really important to me. And it is also a great excuse for um, a tax rebate adventure. So, <laughs> um, but, also, but also I just like to actually go and experience places and talk to people because that's the only way I kind of get a sense of what somewhere is like, and it feeds into the stories. With Zoo City, I love the Hungarian cover, cover by um, Kyra Santa. I especially love how it references Joey Hi-Fi's cover. You can see in the city skyline in the flight of birds. She's kind of referencing what's happening there. Um, so I went to Hillbrow. Uh, my daughter was three months old, and I was still breastfeeding, so I was pumping every day. And I went to Hillbrow and Johannesburg for five days. And I spent time walking around. I was with the Zimbabwean fixer, Jonathan... Um, uh, and we walked around, and this is the alley that leads to a chop shop. 
And there are all those crazy cool flyers, you know, about the prophets and like, you know, get an abortion and a penis extension. Um, and we're walking through Hillbrow and I'm like, what is that? What are those buildings? And it's High Point, which was a really beautiful, gorgeous block in the 80s. Um, it was kind of the zhuzh block where like, you know, you would go and live like the lifestyle. And my dad actually, when he was, he was thinking about divorcing my mom and he was like, oh yeah, and then I'm going to like go get an apartment and like, you know, High Point's. Um, and he didn't, and they took a while to divorce, but, but now it's, I'm like, I'm going there. And the great thing about being a novelist as opposed to being a journalist is you can walk into High Point and you can ask to speak to the management and you can say, hi, I'm writing a book. Um, it's a novel. And I was wondering if we could have a look around. And if you're a journalist, people are like, oh, what's your agenda? If you're a novelist, people say, oh yes, absolutely, let's facilitate everything. And, and they're kind of looking over your shoulder to see what you're writing and hoping that they might make a cameo. Um, so we got shown around by the young security guys. Uh, we went onto, the garage opens up onto kind of the lower deck roof and the electricity was out, so the, um, so the lifts weren't working, so residents were throwing their garbage over the roof. And you kind of had to, you had to kind of, you know, if you were stepping out, you had to make sure that there wasn't garbage going to fall on you. Um, and we, we walked all the way up to the 24 flights and, you know, there are laundry lines on the top. And, you know, it's somewhere people live. And we think of Hillbrow, especially as nice white folk, as this kind of blighted place. And we've seen the breathless Louis Theroux documentaries where people are throwing, you know, um, refrigerators off the top floors of buildings. And there's crime and there's violence and it's crazy. And that all does happen as well, but it is also somewhere people live. Um, and that's why I wanted to get at by going there, was to try and get at the fact that people live there. And I'm just going to try, uh, sidetrack for a moment. You know, the, these preconceptions that we have about stuff. I was in London a few years ago after the London riots. And I remember coming out of the subway station, and I'm like standing there on the subway platform, and I'm texting my friend saying, is it safe to be here? And they're like, what are you even talking about? And I feel like that's the idea that a lot of people have about South Africa or about Hillbrow or about these places where we see one story on the news and we assume that that is all there is of something. So I really wanted to get under the skin of that. And I went to the Mai Mai uh, market and to Faraday market, which are the traditional healers markets. I also went into the tunnels. I, I set a whole scene in the storm drains. I actually went into the storm drains in Cape Town because I couldn't go in Joburg. There's a tour in Cape Town run by Camisa. Um, and we went down with a bunch of Germans who were singing terrible German songs, which was terrible for the atmosphere. I was like, come on, I'm just trying to get a feel for the vibe and you're singing, I don't even know, Idelweiss or something. Um, and you're kind of walking along and like there's a broken pipe in the middle and you're in gumboots and you're kind of wading along the side and you duck your head but also amazing detail, which I never would have found otherwise. So, for example, we're walking along and there are clusters of cockroaches on the wall um, where the water seeps down. The cockroaches come to drink. And some of them are white cockroaches because they haven't seen the sunlight in a long time. And the guy in front of me trips and he goes, ah, splat, squelch. And it was such an amazing detail. I was glad it wasn't me and I totally put it in the book. Um, and I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't actually gone there. Um, and it's a one-liner, but it meant a lot to me. It just felt like more, more, um, more real. I also went to the Central Methodist Church. Um, these photographs are by David Goldblatt. 
Uh, it's a church in Johannesburg. At the time when I went there in 2009, there were some 3,000 refugees um, taking refuge there. Under apartheid, it was also the place where uh, a lot of activists went for shelter. So historically, it's been a place of refuge. And it was one of the most harrowing and devastating places I've ever been. You know, we're, we're walking, my, my nice white friends from the suburbs who I've been staying with dropped me off um, in central Johannesburg with Johnston, my Zimbabwean fixer and security guard. And there's just this electric energy, but not like a good energy. I don't know if you've ever grabbed onto an electric fence or something, but that kind of current which tightens your muscles. There was that kind of like running through the crowd. And it was very aggressive. My friends were like, are you, are you sure? And I was like, Johnston, what do you think? He's like, no, no, we're fine. I'm like, okay. So we go in, we go into the church, and we go find our way, pushing through the crowds up to the upper level in the balcony. And we find a place to sit next to this wonderful um, Zimbabwean nurse who is immaculately dressed in a white linen suit. And there's a service, and there are kids running around. There are people coughing. There's a guy sprawled out next to us. His feet look like they're rotting, and that he probably walked here from the DRC, and that's probably exactly what happened. And it's just, it's hectic. And I'm talking to the nurse, Mary, and she says to me, um, she's like, yeah, you know, like she was in Cape Town for a bit, and now she's here, but she's actually thinking about going back to Zimbabwe. And she doesn't really like being here because she can't really get close to anyone because she feels that there's no one she can trust to tell her stories. And that really stuck with me. So after the service, um, I check with Bishop Paul Verain, who's the guy running the church. Um, and there's a beautiful book about the church called Refuge. Um, and, I say, and I say, Mary wants to show me where she sleeps. Is that okay? And he's like, yes, of course. So she takes me down three flights of stairs, and we're pushing past this crowd that's pushing back. And it's really aggressive. And at one point, like, the lights are out, and we're just kind of pushing through the crowd, and it's pitch black. And we get to the bottom, and some people are, like, finding a piece of cardboard to, like, put down on the staircase. And they're going to sleep on a piece of cardboard on the staircase. And those people are lucky because they have a piece of cardboard. Other people are just lying down on the cement. And we get down to the basement, which is probably about double the size of this hall. And, um, and it's packed. Standing room only. There's some babies being bathed in buckets. Um, and like Amashangan, the kind of rattan suitcases all piled up against the back wall. And Mary says that a lot of the kids, um, a lot of the babies are the result of rape at the border. Because that's what it costs to get across the border. And it's, it's just devastating. Um, and I don't see how people are going to find a place to sleep because you can't find a place to stand. And we reel out of there. My, my nice white friends come and pick us up. And they're like, how was it? And I'm just like, oh. And I'm still trying to process it. And Johnston, the black Zimbabwean fixer, and most of the people we spoke to were Zimbabwean. I'm like, geez, it was, it was, ah. Oh. And I'm trying to find the words. And Johnston cuts in and he was like, it was pathetic. Those people were pathetic. And it was a failure of empathy. And it was a failure of story. And that's what we do when we see the news. We immediately disassociate it and we push it away. And it's overwhelming and it's too much and those people are not like us. And even if those people are like us, we wouldn't be like that in that situation. You know, we wouldn't be like crying for our children. We would find a way for our children to survive. And... I realized that I couldn't put this in the book, that I couldn't put the church in the book, I couldn't put the scene in the book, because it would be overwhelming the same way it was overwhelming for Johnston. 
and for me. So what I did was I made one story in the book about a refugee. It's Zinzi's boyfriend is a refugee, and I kind of used him as a lens to get at this, because this is unbearable and untouchable and overwhelming. And we need the story to anchor us. We need that gateway through to be able to understand. And that's what story does so very, very powerfully. I also like to subvert the story. And I'm motivated by a lot of anger. So with The Shining Girls, which is my biggest success, um, I decided to write a book about a time-traveling serial killer. And it's my only elevator pitch. I cannot explain any of my other books in three words. Um, I had like a murder wall where I planned out the timeline. On, the, on this side is the actual historical timeline of the murders. That's the killer's timeline where he's jumping around. He's got a house which transports him from the 1930s to the 1990s. I stopped 1993 because I didn't want to have to deal with the internet. Um, and then it's like the woman's timeline, the actual book timeline in between, and these photographs I found online or ones I'd taken on my research trip. And these are some of my research photographs just off my cell phone, which my amazing cover designer incorporated into the actual design. Um, and I just went to like cool places, and I looked at things that I thought a time traveler would find weird, like a car wash. Or 20th century shoes are really weird, guys. Like sneakers are weird. Um visited the Wrigley Cubs Stadium. I interviewed a lot of people. She's a um, criminal lawyer. Uh, I went on a murder play date with one of my best friends and her little girl. We went to go and visit like one of the major murder scenes where I wanted to set it, which was um, this beach park. And a little girl was like, oh, Birdie. And I'm like, yes, and here is where she would drag through. I mean, yes, Birdie, Birdie. Um, I found weird old houses and like, you know, a lot of boarded up houses. Chicago actually is one of the places that the apartheid government went to in the 1950s to learn how to do segregation better, um, which is that you drive a highway right through the slums, which I think you'll see if you drive from the airport into, May into Cape Town, um, to prevent protests and to prevent rallying. But looking at old houses, looking inside old houses and like looking at the wreckage and just the fact that there's just a toilet left, it's just really interesting. I spoke to homicide detectives. We went through some old case files. This is an actual investigation. They like write it up on the whiteboard. It's not CSI. I'm sorry, guys. Um, old case files, old photographs. Look at these photographs. These are amazing. And this is all lost evidence. This photograph like really stuck with me. Like I've Googled this woman's name and I'm like... There's nothing on her, but I don't know if she's a victim. I don't know if she is a uh, perpetrator, but there's something in her eyes, right? Like there really is. There's something in the way that she's looking at the camera, and that's, that's definitely a story there. What I wanted to do with The Shining Girls, though, was look at the way we talk about violence against women and the way we talk about serial killers. And I did a lot of research into real serial killers, and real serial killers are not sophisticated and urbane and outwitting the detectives with every move and also serving up someone's liver in a fine Chianti. You know, like that's, real serial killers are lame, pathetic losers whose only power in the world is violence, who are so broken and, excuse me, fucked up that this is the only way that they can feel, this is the only way that they feel that they can have power. They are impotent in every sense, in the world, in terms of their own powerlessness, but also often sexually impotent. They are not sexy, they are not cool. 
they are losers. But we talk about them as these incredible, sophisticated, intriguing monsters, and they're not. And we talk about their victims as sexy dead girls. And you know, they've got the limbs sprawled out. I don't know if anyone's watched the Hannibal TV series, but there's one scene where they find a dead body, and it's like the dawn light is like creeping across the horizon, and she's impaled naked on like a pile of like deer antlers. And it's erotic. It is. And that is how we like our dead girls, is we like it a little bit titillating, a little bit kinky. You know, it's kind of, it's hot to have this young innocent killed. How what a terrible desecration. And of course, this was perfectly illustrated by Riva Steenkamp's murder. And for the first 24 hours, I don't know if you guys remember, this was just after, was just before the, uh, the Shining Girls came out, just after I'd submitted the manuscript, this happened. For the first 24 hours, no one named her. She was just Oscar Pistorius' girlfriend. And newspapers like The Sun loved this. Bikini model, oh my God, sexy bikini model, married or like, you know, dating an athlete who's like a hero, but also any excuse to like put a sexy blonde in a bikini on their cover with the suggestion of violence. And let's compare this to a murder which happened two days before Rivers, which was Anine Boysen's. And it was the most horrific rape and murder. And this is the only photograph we have about her. And the only reason it made the headlines was because it was so horrifying. A friend of mine used to work at ETV News at the time, and she says that she sent her journalist out to cover it. And the journalist was like, oh, come on. And journalists are very cynical, you know, so... Jonas was like, oh, you know, it's, it's a rape and murder. Like, and my friend who is the editor said, no, this rape is special. And it has to be. If they're poor and black, it has to be special for us to care. If they're white and hot, oh yeah, we're all over that. And I wanted to write against this, and I wanted to write against this kind of expectation. It also tied into the death of someone I knew. Um, she, she was my domestic worker's daughter, and she was 21 years old, and um, in 2009, 2009, her boyfriend stabbed her, and he poured boiling water over her head, and he walked away. He locked her in the shack, and he walked away. And after five days, the neighbors were so disturbed by the noises and the screaming and the moaning, they called the police, and the police broke down the door, and they found her, and she was still alive. But she had third-degree burns, and... It took her three months to die. And her mom would phone me at two o'clock in the morning and say, I've got to take her to Red Cross. Can you send me some taxi money? And they didn't know their rights. The guy was like lurking around their house. And it was actually lurking around their house the night before Tomokazi died. Um, he was spotted outside in the alleyway. And what is not sexy and cool is a young woman who is so frightened of the man who did this to her, that she shits the bed because he's just outside the window. And her mom took her to hospital and she died at Somerset Clinic that, that, the next day. And they put it down as natural causes. And I try to help the cops, you know, I try to, I try to get involved. And I try to get the records from like the hospital and no one would give it to me. And I try to get the women's legal center involved and they weren't very helpful and eventually, um, I went with the sister Violet. We went to the magistrate's court for the actual court case. And I remember, like, Violet nudged me, and she was like, there, that, that's the guy, that's him sitting there. And, of course, in the South African court system, what happens is you end up sitting next to the perpetrator on the, court, on, on the bench outside. 
And he was sitting there with his new 19-year-old girlfriend. And I looked at him and I was like, excuse my language again, fuck you. You're going to jail. You're going to jail forever for what you did. And then the prosecutor called us into his, into his office. And he said, I can't try this case. And I was devastated. I was like, what do you mean? And he, and he pulled out one sheet of paper. And he was like, this is the only investigation the police did. The only person they interviewed was her, and she's dead. So it's the, it's the word of a dead girl against him, alive in court. He could say anything right now. He could say, you know, it was... It, it was some other abusive boyfriend who happened to have the keys to my house. It was, she came at me first. She attacked me. He's like, I, you know, the judge will dismiss this. He's like, and I burst into tears. I was sobbing in the courtyard, in the courtroom. Because up until that moment, I had fundamentally believed in the fairy tale of justice. And it doesn't exist. Not the way we want it to. Not the way it does in stories. And part of writing The Shining Girls was cathartic. Um... Because what happened after the case was I got it reopened. I got in, into all the major newspapers because I'm white and I'm middle class and I have a voice and I know how to use it and I have journalist friends. So I got into all the major papers. The case was reopened. There was a lot of pressure on people. And the family phoned me a week later. And they were like, Lauren, we need you to let this go. We can't, we can't bear it. We can't deal with it. We don't want to go through it again. We don't want to like dredge up the past. We've already buried her in the sky. And we don't want to now have to exhume her body. We're, we're just going to let it go. And we need you to let it go. And it was one of the hardest things I'd ever had to do was let this go. But it wasn't my story and it wasn't my, my life. But that's one of the things in The Shining Girls is that, is that there is justice. And the heroine is unable to let it go and she sees it through. But fiction is a fairy tale. And it's a comforting one that we tell ourselves. But I think if that can help inspire us in the real world, that maybe, maybe there's something there. Or maybe it's a comfort. So, a lot of my books are weird. I don't know if you've picked that up from the way I've been talking about them. Um, but for me, what's really important is that these incredible weird ideas need to hang on credible details. So with Broken Monsters, it's about a weird artist in Detroit who creates kind of human mashups of art with dead bodies. Um, possibly inspired by Dream and the doorways in his head, in Detroit. Um, and Detroit, for me, was like Hillbrow. It's somewhere, and all my books are analogs of Johannesburg. It's like ways for me to find a way to write about Johannesburg again. And like Detroit is just, you know, Joburg in the Midwest. Um, and Detroit is this terrible place. You know, we've all seen the footage. We've seen the ruined porn photographs. This is actually a message on... Um, the interrogation room in the Detroit police station, which says, God is my friend. Please, God, help me get out of here. And that's how a lot of people feel about Detroit. It's had a major white flight. Uh, the city is now only 800,000 people. Um, and beautiful ruins. This is the central um, train station, just absolutely gorgeous. This is the Fisher plant. This is the Packard plant, which I think is uh, 3.6 miles of abandoned auto factory. And it's beautiful. It's like a zombie apocalypse movie. It's, it's more evocative than the apocalypse or the Colosseum because it's the ruins of our civilization. And you can like walk through this and be like, oh my God, we're so screwed. Um, and just, just mad. Um, but it is also a bright, shining city. General Motors still has its headquarters there. That's their headquarters buildings. Very phallic, obviously. Um, beautiful old houses. This is an Indian village. Like, just gorgeous. 
Hipster Central, this is the um, Eastern Markets where all the art studios and stuff are. American flags, the stadium, beautiful theaters with like amazing musicians, which we'd never see play here. An incredible art scene as well. Like some of the old abandoned houses have been converted into artworks. Um, and it's just amazing. And, and going through Detroit and going into an old theater and like seeing like the wreckage and, you know, like seeing like the way the sunbeams kind of filter through the dust and, and they're kind of black squirrels like scampering around and like the weeds outside. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. And oh God, that's probably not dust. That's probably asbestos and I'm going to die at 53. Um, and like one, you know, like one red chair in the theater like pulled out like a rotten tooth. And then talking to people, um, uh, this is a guy I met in the pottery, uh, and I was like, you, you're showing me around. And he seemed really cool, and the second time I went back to Detroit, I hired him to meet me and take me around again. And he, um, he arrived in this big black van at the airport, and I was like, how, how well do I know this guy? So I get in, and I'm like, hey, Robert David, it's so nice to see you. I was like, nice murder wagon. And he was like, oh, no, it's not a motor wagon. It's a mortuary van. I borrowed it from my neighbors next door. I'm sorry I was late. We had to drop off a little dead old lady like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> Truth is stranger than fiction. And that's how I got driven around Detroit, was in the mortuary van. Um, I also met like really interesting people like this cop um, and Bob Haig. He served 20 years on the Detroit Police Department and has also written a kid's book called, self-published, called Who Can, Baby Can. Um, the world's hottest taxidermist who walked me through her studio. This is a Skype chat we had, like screen grabs from that, and told me how to stuff animals and told me this horrible story about like when she skinned a uh, kangaroo and dumped the body in like the trash outside and the cops came to investigate. Um, and it, I totally used it in the book. It was amazing. And also amazing people like James Harris, who I went to work, go work in a homeless shelter for the day um, in the soup kitchen. And I kind of served people food and then I went around and sat and talked to them. And his story was so inspiring and amazing, and the way he talked about his life and where it happened to him, I used a lot of that in the book. Um, hung out with teenage theater geeks. We talked about how all the world's a stage, and I was like, how does that relate in like, the modern world? And they were like, well, social media is the stage, and the rest of our lives is what happens in the wings and backstage preparing to put on that show. And that became a major theme in the book, is social media and the internet and how we relate to it, and especially for teenagers. Um, I tried for months to get into Detroit Homicide. Um, and finally, I got through Twitter. I connected to, I just put out a message on Twitter saying, hey, does anyone know anyone in DPD, like Homicide? I really need to talk to some detectives. And somebody in Ann Arbor connected me to someone else, and they connected me to... The, white the black detective, who's currently working in Detroit Homicide, and the white detective, who's retired. And I took them for lunch. Um, and the white guy, Mike, just picked up the phone. And he was like, hey, and I, you've got to understand, I've been emailing, and my publisher had phoned, and they'd written letters, and I'd been going on for like almost a year. And Mike just picks up the phone, and he's like, hey, Brenda, yeah, I'm sending like a, a novelist through tomorrow. Is that okay? And she's like, yes, of course. And the next day, I bought donuts from the best donut place in Detroit and went through to the Detroit police station. And again, this is expectation. So I'd done a lot of research on this. I'd read all the books. And the Detroit police station, this is where Bonnie and Clyde were arrested, okay? Um, beautiful old building, just absolutely amazing. And like, you go in and like, none of the computers work and there are weird stains coming through the roof. This is Kenneth the Reverend, um, 
Parker, who, who showed me around. He was a detective. He's actually wearing alligator skin boots. Um, and I mean, look at this place. It's like out of like Raymond Chandler. It was beautiful. I was so excited. And I'd already written a lot of scenes set here. Um, just gorgeous. This is one of the interrogation rooms where that graffiti was. Some more graffiti. I'm sorry, Jay Woody. I didn't mean for this to happen. So beautiful and amazing. And also, Detroit stories feel like South African stories. Bonnie and Clyde's um, fingerprints have been lost. And part of me is like, well, well, you know, obviously some cops sold them on eBay. But I think they're probably just as incompetent and their bureaucracy is just as broken as ours and they probably genuinely did lose them. But of course, that is not the Detroit police station anymore. They haven't used that in two years. That is the new Detroit police station. And I was like, no, I don't want to write about that. And that's... Cartoon cars? Come on! And it's Cubicle City inside. Everyone has working computers, there's no problem getting the internet, they have a gym upstairs with TVs at every treadmill. I was like, no! But I didn't want to write about Detroit the way people often write about South Africa. I, I wanted to get it right, and I wanted to be respectful to the people who work there. So I had a flashback to the old police station, and then the rest of it was set in the new police station. I know we're running out of time, and I'm finishing up. Something that's really important to me is to have fun with what you do. Um, and I mainly find writing not fun. I find it very lonely and excruciating. And I wish I could become a plumber instead. Um, but I seem to have kind of lost myself in this particular job. With Moxieland, we decided to do a really cool launch. Again, that's the Hungarian artist doing a really cool cover, the blue one. Um, and we, Moxieland is about a corporate apartheid state. So we had a corporate entrance at the book lounge and a non-corporate entrance. And my friend Alex Ventonda had a clipboard, and, but there was nothing on the clipboard. She was just making it up. You know, so you would arrive and she would decide whether you were corporate or non-corporate. And if you were corporate, you got swept in through the main doors and there was a cocktail waiting for you by this beautiful young woman waiting to meet you. And if you went to the non-corporate entrance, where Andre Brunk was, of course, sent. <sighs> Shame, he was very nice about it. Um, you got harassed by a bouncer for 10 minutes saying, why should I let you in, scum? Uh, Andre Brink nearly left, but he stayed. We had a protester handing out um, flyers who was so convincing, protesting the kind of biogenetically engineered police dogs. He was so convincing and we were just down from Parliament. No one would take his flyers. No one. Um, that was kind of the example of the flyers. We had a lab experiment happening, which is something which relates to the book. Um, you were given a little test tube at the door, and you were told you might have been infected, and you had to take it downstairs to the lab to see. Um, and if you were infected, uh, that's Sam Wilson, by the way, in that lab code. Um, then that's my brother, Tabo. Then you would get a shot of apple sours, um, which was your antidote. But it's also amazing to me to see like how other people play in my in my universe and like people make fan art, you know, like they relate to my book and they make their own art from my ideas. It's amazing. And, and to see how other minds play with your ideas. And of course, that's the power of reading and the power of stories is it's a conversation, not between the writer and the reader, but between the book and the reader. Because when you read a book, you bring all of yourself to that book. And that's what makes reading like the purest hits of fiction you can have. I mean, we have amazing TV series right now. But fiction where it's happening in your head and happening in conversation with your experience and who you are, that is something else. Again, just amazing fan art from Zoo City. Um, there is a cannibal penguin um, in Zoo City, if you haven't read it. 
uh, Zinzi and her sloth. And coming back to my first image, which is the disco ball. So I like to live my life by um, the idea that the spotlight is light, and light is very easily shared. And you don't have to worry about other people taking the spotlight from you. You can bounce it back at them like a disco ball. So with Moxieland, the Moxie monster on the cover was so cool, I coveted it immediately. Like my cover designer had it made by a woman called Michelle Son. And it was so cool. I was like, I want it. And my, he likely gave it to me. But I was like, if I want it, other people will want it. So we found a women's group um, in Montague, and we got them to make a whole bunch of Moxie monsters, and we raised 15,000 Rand for them. Uh, by selling the original Moxie toys. With Zoo City, I wanted to go one better, so we decided to have uh, vinyl art toys, which are about this size. And I gave them to six different artists to customize however they wanted. They could do whatever they wanted, as long as it was somehow inspired by the book. And we raised 16,000 Rand for a kids' refugee charity um, in Hillbrow. And then we also, after Zoo City won the uh, Arthur C. Clarke Award, I wore a sloth to the ceremony. Um, which a friend of mine made for me, and, uh, because Zinzi has a sloth. And then she, I asked her to make another one so that we could auction it off. And I, what I did with Zoo City, and you can find this video online as well, is we got some people from an organization called Kulisa, which works with offenders and ex-offenders. Now, the normal recidivism rate, which is the repeat offense rate, is something like 84%. If you've been through the Kulisa program, it drops to 14%. They restore people's dignity, they give them hope, they give them life, they give them jobs. And we got some of the people who've been through the Kalisa program to come and do readings from the prison diary chapters of Zoo City. And then we auctioned off the sloth and raised 4,000 Rand for Kalisa. Um, with The Shining Girls, it was such a huge international success, I decided that I wanted to go bigger. And I approached my friend Jackie Lang, who is a curator. Um, and I was like, look, can we do something really cool involving art and my book and something? And I want to raise a lot of money for Rape Crisis because The Shining Girls is about violence against women and Rape Crisis does incredible work. And Jackie suggested that we rip pages out of the book, total book desecration, and we send them to artists to do whatever they wanted. You know, and like some, some, some of them like just underline some words and sign their name or put down their coffee mug. And others created the most incredible artwork like Willine LaRue's Lightbox, um, Jesse Breitenbach's, like, you know, uh, laser-cut butterflies. We had an original Roger Ballin and a Jonathan Shapiro, and just incredible art. We had a queue down three flights of stairs for three hours before we opened the doors because the rules were each piece, didn't matter who the artist was, was going to sell for a 1,000 rand. You were only allowed to buy one. You got a sticker at the door. So it also allowed people to buy art if you couldn't normally afford art. But you didn't know who the artists were. So you got your sticker and you had to go in and, like, choose your work. And obviously, you're going to recognize the Zapiro from like, you know, 400 paces. But there was a lot of art that people just connected with emotionally. And we sold out in 20 minutes. We raised 100,000 Rand for Rape Crisis in 20 minutes. So it was really amazing. And then with Broken Monsters, we got a corporate sponsor involved. Nando's came on board. And we decided to work with Book Dash because Broken Monsters is about the doors in our heads. And fiction is the door in our heads. And it allows us to be more than we are and to step into other worlds. And there's an amazing organization called BookDash. Uh, you can get all of their books for free on bookdash.org. Um, and we decided that we're going to sell the artworks for 1,500 Rand, and each artwork would then pay for the printing of 150 books. And they're all original books created by South African illustrators and writers, professionally edited and put together. 
They do them in a book dash session, which lasts 12 hours, um, where they, like, you know, from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., they just work flat out. And, like, professionally edit the book, and if it needs rewriting, they go back and do that. And then the writers and artists release the books under Creative Commons. So you can go and print those books, and you can go and sell them at the, at the robots if you wanted to. The whole idea with BookDash is they want every child by the age of five in South Africa to own at least one book. Um, and it's the power of story and the power of the imagination and reflecting us back at ourselves. So we raised 350,000 Rand uh, for BookDash, which paid for 36,000 books to get printed. We had the most amazing artwork. It was just really cool. And this time we did an art, uh, art show in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. So yeah, so to finish, um, yeah, there's some philosophies I live by. The one is try and share the light. Because um, also it bounces back at you. But for me, like, you know, the typical writing advice is like, well, what do you do? Like, what would your advice be to young writers? And the advice is always the same, which is finish the damn book. Um, which sometimes gets thrown back at me. I've been really struggling with my new book. And sometimes people will tweet that, you know, writing advice, you know, finish the damn book. I'm like, I know, I know, shut up. Okay, but for me, like, success is 10% talent, it's 10% luck, and it's 80% bloody-minded determination. You get punched down, and you got to get up, and you got to, like, spit out the blood, maybe a few teeth, you wipe off your mouth, and you get back in the ring. Um, and my friend Richard Cadry, who talks about his 20-year overnight success as a writer, because it took him 20 years to get to the place where he could actually make a living from writing, he's like, we all know writers who were more talented than we are and who haven't stayed the distance. And it doesn't come down to talent, it comes down to not being prepared to give up. And it's hard, and for most writers, the world is gonna reject you and ignore you. And you have to write the stories because you care. So don't give up and roll with the punches. Another thing that's really important for me is be cheeky. Ask for what you want. Because otherwise people don't know, and the worst anyone is ever gonna say is no. And I swear this is going to work. Every time I fly, I ask for an upgrade. One of these days, it's going to work. <laughs> but don't be an asshat. So be cheeky and ask, but handle it with grace and flair and sophistication and make them remember like, how gracious you were um, after they said no. Thank you. I think we're out of time. Yeah, we are definitely out of time. Um, so if you have questions, please come find me afterwards. I think I'm signing books out. I'm signing books outside. I am signing books outside. So please come chat to me. Cool. And thank you for coming. <laughs>